welcome back to another episode of the Gillette Health Podcast. And what do we do on this podcast? This is where we give you the tools to develop your balanced approach to health. Absolutely. And I'm excited for today's episode. And this is actually prompted by some of the feedback we got from listeners because mm -hmm. we talk a lot about male hormones. We chatted a bit about hormones after menopause. Mm -hmm. um, but people have had a lot of requests for like what I do with my hormones pre-menopause, what about PCOS, what about endometriosis. So we kind of have an outline of things we're going to cover and we'll do our best to stay on topic. Yeah. In general, this constellation of symptoms, a lot of them are uh, related to hyperestrogenism or a imbalance in estrogens and androgens to the rest of the hormones. Um, these are very common diagnoses and there is an excess of demand, I suppose, or perhaps it's just a, um, a, a imbalance in the amount of supply that the medical system has to treat these holistically and addressing the cause rather than just giving medications to cover up a symptom. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of um, influencers now that are bringing awareness to this. Um, and there's sort of a bit of a pushback against uh, birth control in general, not because um, you know, birth control is not important, but because a lot of times it is you know, covering up something that's there. And we can talk about the nuance surrounding that. But mm -hmm. um, how would someone know if they have PCOS? Uh, most of the time, you don't know. It's a very common condition. It's also on a continuum or spectrum. So some cases are very strong. Some cases are very weak. Some are mostly androgen dominant. Some are mostly insulin resistant. Some are mostly genetic or other factors as well. And then you can be at any point on that XYZ plot that you might want to be at. Um, one of the uh, common uh, like occurrences or things that we hear, and uh, myself being the patient, you being the provider, is, um, hey, I've come off my birth control pill. I was on it for 15 years from age 15 to 30. Now I'm interested in becoming pregnant and I'm not sure if I'm ovulating. Now I'm starting to have these symptoms like increased acne, hair growth in some strange areas, and I've also gained a lot of weight. Um, what might be going on? I've never had any lab workup, by the way. <laughs> yeah, this is a fairly common uh, plan, or the plan that patients are put on. And at 15, if a girl goes to the doctor, hey, I'm having irregular periods or my periods are painful. A lot of times you're put on an oral contraceptive and then you have a, a decade where you really don't know, you know what's going on because you're not going through those hormonal shifts every month. So whenever you come off of that, you're gonna have some changes in your hormone profile. Typically, you're gonna have an increase in free testosterone and total testosterone, but particularly the free testosterone because your SHBG will come down coming off of an oral contraceptive. Mm -hmm. And then you will also, sometimes it takes a while to reestablish a normal cycle. There's a number of different factors that go into that. Mm -hmm. um, but if you are having irregular cycles or, or missing your cycles and you're not ovulating, that can be a clue um, that you may have PCOS. A lot of times mm -hmm. fertility is something that, you know, we've been trying for a while. And then when you elicit a history, I ask, you know, do you have any hair growth in certain places or have you noticed acne that's problematic? And if you have had any medical workup before, you know, have you had any imaging of your ovaries that showed cysts? And that sort of gets into the Rotterdam criteria, which is very nonspecific. Because you just need two out of the three criteria, you know, issues with you know, ovulation, androgenic symptoms, and then the other would be actual um, seeing cysts on the ovaries. So looking at those three things, 
you just need two out of three to make that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, a woman who's using anabolic steroids could be diagnosed with PCOS because she she's be. not ovulating and she's got facial hair or mm -hmm. hair in androgenic places. So it's really not a great criteria. So there's probably many people with, they've been told they have PCOS and they don't. And many people with the PCOS phenotype who have been told they don't have PCOS. Mm -hmm. Correct. Um, in the diagnosis and workup for any pathology, it's important to, um, well, one, look at what common pathologies it might be, and then two, rule out very rare but very severe disease states. For example, congenital adrenal hyperplasia as um, like a, another pathology that could be masking as PCOS. Yeah, there's a lot of overlapping symptoms with those two specifically. Um, and then even other fertility issues, like if you're checking, um, have your thyroid ever been checked? Because that's yeah. another common cause of fertility problems or a, a prolactin level. There's a, a pretty extensive history, physical and lab workup that needs to be done to kind of establish this diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, but then once this diagnosis is established, um, you know, we'll talk about treatment a little bit later on, but what does this mean for the patient's fertility? Um, what does this mean for their ovulation? How do they know if ovulation is occurring? What are some of those things that they need to know about as far as the process of the underlying state or condition? At very least, this individual should be doing preconception planning um, and adjunct with their partner, but really everybody should be doing that anyway. And at most, this individual might have signif like very significant um, subfertility or even infertility and persistent anovulatory cycles. Um, the degree of oligomenorrhea, which is usually defined as less than nine periods a year, or an interval of more than 35 days in between menstrual periods, um, that is not necessarily correlated with anovulation, but it can be. Some common methods to track, um, one is cervical mucus monitoring, which can be fairly difficult to learn, but a lot of places do teach it. You can do basal body temperatures, which again, is fairly difficult to learn. You can also test progesterones in the luteal phase, so kind of at the end of the cycle. You can also test for an LH spike, often at home, because sometimes it's only spiked up for about 12 hours. And um, then you can also do things to assess um, persistence of fertility, um, including uh, uh, antral follicle counts, anti-malarian hormones, ratios of FSH to LH, um, even estradiol level. So there's quite a few to assess to see, uh, should this individual be thinking about freezing eggs now if they don't plan for fertility in X number of years? Yeah, because there is a window there and you know, earlier is better, but everybody's circumstances are different. Uh, and I think it's important to point out if you're having these workups done looking at progesterone, estrogen, actually actively evaluating your fertility or your fertility window, uh, best to be done off of contraceptives because otherwise you're essentially going to be not having functioning or not fully functioning ovaries, not going to be ovulating, and um, this workup would not particularly yield much useful information. Mm -hmm. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. So what useful information could be gleaned from taking labs on contraceptives, or should they never be ordered? <laughs> yeah. There's certainly value for um, other health metrics, and you can also see how uh, oral contraceptives are affecting your health. Mm -hmm. um, I think we had a question about you know, oral contraceptives and you know, how to avoid some of those side effects. So if you, uh, if you have an average person, average woman who's on oral contraceptives and checks her hormones, um, like we said, we would expect to see a very low free testosterone, a very high SHBG, um, fairly suppressed LH and FSH. Um, if you have a woman who's on, let's say, a NuvaRing or a transdermal contraceptive, mm -hmm. then you would expect to see the SHBG less affected, not to say that it still wouldn't rise, um, the free testosterone less affected, and you would still have the suppression of ovulation and largely suppressed LH and FSH. So that's what you would expect to see. Uh, but there are plenty of people, not the majority, but there are plenty of people who have a normal SHBG while they're on an oral contraceptive. And depending on the contraceptive, you may not be having a true lack of androgens, particularly if you're producing plenty of um, DHEA or androgen precursor from the adrenals. Mm -hmm. Another interesting thing that you can see off versus on an oral contraceptive is how your SHBG reacts and how your total androgen reacts as well. So you can tell, uh, yes, I do have a bit of adrenal uh, hyperplasia, not pathologic even, but a, a good high level of adrenal androgen production. When you're off an oral contraceptive, um, does just having a normal or even low total testosterone mean that you produce less androgen? Not particularly. Many people with PCOS produce many androgens, but they still have low normal testosterone, low or normal, because they metabolize it so quickly. Yeah, and it's really interesting when you look at the testosterone uh, levels. A lot of times they are not significantly elevated. They certainly can be. Mm -hmm. uh, could be as high as two or 300 nanogram per deciliter in PCOS female. Uh, but it's not always the number that correlates with the clinical picture. You could have someone who has a, a normal level, but they're still having androgenic um, symptoms. And that's something that we find particularly interesting because there's different levels of sensitivity to really any hormone um, but it's one of those things that we can actually test for as well. Mm -hmm. Let's chat about endometriosis. Um, how related is this with stuff like PCOS and why is it so common? Yeah, so you certainly can have PCOS and endometriosis independently. You don't have to have one to have the other. But um, if you have the misfortune of having both of these conditions, then now, PCOS can certainly aggravate endometriosis, as you referenced earlier, tendency towards overproduction of estrogens, a lack of um, progestins, progesterone, 
that opposes that and it can cause the endometriosis to progress at a more rapid pace than it would. Um, but for example, and this is kind of the double-edged sword of uh, someone going on an oral contraceptive. Um, if it is a you know, progestin only, perhaps that's beneficial in slowing the progression of mm -hmm. endometriosis. Um, even a, a low estrogen or a low dose est uh, synthetic estrogen could be useful in that context. Mm -hmm. But uh, most of the time this is being done and people don't know whether or not there's actually endometriosis there. Yep. So they don't know if they are, you know, they just kind of blindly happened upon the right protocol and they may actually be helping the patient rather than specifically saying is there endometriosis there they're screening for things like you know, pelvic pain is that is that happening just around the time of menstruation or is this something that's happening not in relation to menstruation mm -hmm. the symptom of endometriosis um, unfortunately the gold standard for diagnosis of endometriosis is laparoscopic exploration of which of course you want to avoid if possible but sometimes it's not avoidable um, yeah, as far as health risks related to both of these, but also endometriosis, then um, some of the risks actually stem from the treatments of these different things. There's some endometriosis treatments that uh, include antagonists of GnRH, so basically shutting down the pituitary, inducing a secondary hypogonadism, um, which for the right patient, of course, is the right treatment, but that is certainly... Um, not one, not really addressing the cause holistically, and then also two, has many side effects as well. So there's a lot of health risks, but most of them are associations. So often it's associated with obesity, metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, infertility, um, even uh, congenital birth defects. Um, not necessarily due to the hyperestrogenism, but because of the correlation with other pathologies. Yeah, it, it's sort of a cascade in um, bringing up the GNA, GNRH antagonists. Uh, that's more specific for endometriosis than PCOS. They've actually tested this several decades ago, seeing if a GNRH antagonist would reduce the insulin resistance in PCOS, because you see this correlation with, oh, androgen levels are high, insulin resistance is there, which is kind of counterintuitive to what we know about how the, the hormone testosterone and androgens in general work. Uh, but they tried it and it unsurprisingly did not improve the insulin sensitivity. So it doesn't seem to be the androgens that are driving the insulin insensitivity, but the levels of hyperinsulinemia can certainly drive more androgen production. Correct. Yep. Both in the uh, gonadal axis and in the adrenal axis as well. Um, and peripherally in tissues, the intrachronology. Not to get too off into the weeds, um, staying more on a lot of questions that we get. Um, some questions that we get uh, around menopause is, is the cure to menopause just dating my husband again? So obviously the answer to that is no. So let's posit the question, is the cure to PCOS and endometriosis for that matter? Certainly heard this. Is the cure just to eat less and go for a jog? That is not the cure, but it can be an important part of a comprehensive plan. So when we talk about those sort of you know, sequelae that we see as symptoms of PCOS, um, if somebody you know, becomes insulin resistant, overweight, pre-diabetic, then you treat those two things in a similar manner. So we understand that there's oftentimes gonna be some hyperandrogenic things that we're treating at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, but reducing that 
insulin excess, reducing body weight, even by something like five or 10%. Um, and you don't have to you know, necessarily just force yourself onto a, a diet. Uh, we prefer um, like a, a sustainable pattern of eating. So we wouldn't even really call it a diet. Absolutely. I believe we've sort of coined the term intuitive eating as mm -hmm. something that is sustainable, it's gonna work for you. And that can be with or without medications. You know, lifestyle is always a great place to start because the upside is very high and the potential downside and side effects are very low. So there are many people who have lost significant amounts of weight and improved symptoms with lifestyle alone. Um, and there's also plenty of people who combine supplements or medications and lifestyle um, and have success in reducing that insulin resistance. So I think some things that would be more specific uh, in terms of not just restrict calories, exercise more, um, but perhaps a lower carbohydrate diet because we do know that the carbohydrates are going to drive insulin absolutely not necessarily worrying about the insulin and weight debate that's out there but just insulin and, and driving those androgenic symptoms that could be useful in this particular mm -hmm. state yeah i think this is a great example of um, one even at the same weight and body composition a different diet can have significant beneficial effects and then also two there is a different optimal um, diet for lack of a better term but really just a habit that this is the lifestyle of what you have learned to intuitively eat or what you have learned to not intuitively eat um, because food truly is medicine some individuals with pcos might react very very poorly to carbs doing something like a, a cgm or a glucose monitor might help but also taking a homa ir or an lpir ratio might help or even doing genetic tests and know well for me um, perhaps I'm in the minority, carbs are at least like complex, complete carbs, I react to fairly well, but fats, um, I have a pretty big glycemic and insulin spike from some of these. Yeah, it really is individualized and you know, we've uh, said that over and over again, but really an individualized plan is what's going to be the most successful and that goes back to, you know, even medications. Um, so if we get into some of those things, um, uh, and medications and supplements, because there's sort of this misconception that you know medications are bad and always cause side effects, or that supplements are always good and never have side effects, or people that think vice versa. You know, there's a lot of diversity out there. Uh, but what are some of those things that we commonly see improving clinical outcomes, um, symptom management, or fertility rates in PCOS? I'd say other than COCP, metformin is likely the most prescribed medication, and it can have many benefits. I think of kind of like three main physiologic or pharmacodynamic effects that metformin has. Some of them are more primary, some of them are more secondary. One of them is its insulin sensitization effects, of which there's likely at least four mechanisms of action, but it can help uh, decrease glucose and improve, and improve uh, insulin sensitivity. So it decreases the action of insulin in the liver, and that effect is likely going to help increase your sex hormone binding globulin a bit. Um, if you give metformin to everybody, then it's not gonna significantly increase SHBG. But if there's an individual with PCOS that has an SHBG of seven, then it is certainly gonna help secondary to the insulin sensitization effect. So the more insulin resistance you have, the more it helps. And then it also affects um, the IGF-1 axis, so it can help prevent excess growth signaling. And that IGF-1 axis 
will likely help for things like endometriosis or even um, like breast tenderness or gynecomastia as well. Yeah, metformin is a really versatile medication and uh, some of its effects are even believed to work through its changes it makes in the gut microbiome. Uh, but we mainly think of it as an insulin sensitizer. It's going to decrease insulin and it's going to tend to raise SHBG slightly or perhaps significantly depending on the patient you give it to. Uh, and then there's a lot of data with things like, uh, for example, myo-inositol in acetylcysteine uh, tends to improve fertility in a PCOS phenotype at, at substantial dosages. And really, I think that comes down to just reducing oxidative stress, which is higher uh, probably in PCOS at baseline and, and certainly in metabolic syndrome. And then the myo-inositol, you do have to have a significant dose, typically about four grams there is what's been studied. Um, and there's different kinds of inositol, and I specified myo-inositol, and there's certain ratios that exist there naturally, and they can have either a beneficial or perhaps even a deleterious effect depending on the inositol subtype that we're looking at. And Kyle, I think you know a bit more about this than I do, so could you speak to people a little bit about what some of those differences are, what they should be looking for in a supplement product that has inositol of some kind? Yeah. Often the ratio of myo-inositol and dechiro-inositol in a fertility or PCOS supplement is about 40 to 1, 40 myo to 1 dechiro. In the body, there's also ratios of these two inositols as well. In the ovaries, there tends to be more myo-inositol. So past a certain dose, you certainly do not want to skew that ratio. And again, that's uh, mostly a theoretical benefit. But if you look at rates of ovulation when you give people myo-inositol versus dechiro-inositol, there's a rate of diminishing returns with dechiro-inositol and then a um, diminished rate of ovulation as well. I believe that is a rat study, which many studies are, but it still tells us a lot about the physiology of different inositols in the body. The takeaway from this would be um, if you know you have PCOS and you specifically do not want to discuss the various effects with the um, doctor, if you have a bit of androgen dominance and you want to kind of improve the stratogenesis cascade, a ratio of 40 to 1 myo-inositol to dechiro-inositol is best, but really you should be discussing because some people will be good candidates for just dechiro, some individuals will be good candidates for just myo-inositol, and that supplement is often best taken in a powder just to decrease the pill load. Yeah, and there's a number of different insulin sensitizers. Um, you know, berberine can be a metformin alternative. It's really interesting to look at the differences. Some people will take uh, metformin and they will have terrible GI side effects. Sometimes an extended release can be helpful there. Um, and then some people will take berberine and have terrible GI upset, uh, but they'll be able to tolerate metformin. So again, it goes back to that individual physiology. Um, universally exercise is a great insulin sensitizer as well. Mm -hmm. um, so now we can discuss a bit the, you know, androgenic portion and what are some of the ways that people um, address that uh, in relation to PCOS. Mm -hmm. So let's say, uh, Kyle, I grew this beard and I want to get rid of it. You know, um, what can I do about this or for unwanted body hair? Yeah. So the androgenic side effects are a product of any androgen binding the one androgen receptor. So women, uh, biological females, have two X chromosomes. One is usually turned on, one is usually turned off. That ratio is usually about 50 to 50, but in PCOS, it tends to be skewed. We'll talk more about that later as well. 
But anyway, you have your testosterone, your DHT, even DHEA, androstenedione, and other weaker androgens binding to that same receptor and then causing gene transcriptions and then uh, secondary sexual characteristics like that, even deepening to the voice and androgenic alopecia in some females. So you can address that by changing the sensitivity of the receptor, changing the density of the receptor, changing the ratio of estrogens and progestins, um, and also changing the um, synthesis of these hormones and then also changing the, met the metabolism. So if you're trying to prevent those side effects, you want a combination of less synthesis, more metabolism, or uh, less binding to the receptor. Yeah, I, there's so many different vectors and really a multifaceted approach uh, specific to the timing of the patient. So if we're talking about uh, pharmacology that reduces the androgenic burden, you really don't want that at the time when you're trying to conceive. So for example, something like a finasteride or a dutasteride, uh, known teratogens, you don't want to be taking those because they can cause, particularly in male fetus, uh, changes to the genital development. Um, also with spironolactone, which is commonly given, um, and even you know metformin, uh, there's kind of mixed data there. Uh, it seems to be helpful up to the point of conception, and then if there is a alternative or if the benefits outweigh the potential risk there, then discontinuing that upon conception is usually a, uh, a valuable tool. Um, so with the aldactone, um, this one can carry a bit of a side effect profile because it is originally a blood pressure medication. Yep. It can cause elevated levels of potassium, so it should be carefully monitored. Um, and then with the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, uh, those are very helpful in terms of uh, recovering you know, hair loss, mm -hmm. not necessarily undoing um, you know, terminal hair growth, for example, on the yep. chin. There's some you know, topical agents or laser um, you know, hair removal devices, things like that mm -hmm. that can be helpful for those you know, cosmetic things. Yep. Now, once the hair has set in, in layman's terms, for example, on the jaw or the chin, then uh, removing that mechanically or destroying that cell and then getting on a regimen to where it is unlikely to recur is usually the, the best way to go about it. Um, uh, as far as different medications and antiandrogens, spironolactone is a very common one as an adjunct and you would want to get off that well before fertility. A good rule of thumb on metformin is stopping on conception. If the fetus is a female fetus, then you could consider um, after that fetus is uh, like gendered, you could consider resuming the metformin in many of those cases as well, including to prevent the passing on of those PCOS type traits. Yeah, and to talk a little bit about how the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, dutasteride and finasteride work, finasteride is probably a better choice um, due to its shorter half-life, yep. whereas dutasteride can have a duration of up to six weeks. And you know, we know that time can be very important when it comes to you know, getting off a of medication and planning for fertility. So finasteride is probably a better choice, and it's probably about 80% as effective, I would say, in the PCOS population. Um, and this is a medication that's been used for a long time in males for enlarged prostate or for male pattern baldness. And um, we can see significant hair regrowth with that and we can see significant reduction in the androgenic symptoms. Uh, but we should note that just because you reduce the androgens, as we talked about earlier, that's not going to um, have an effect on the metabolic health side of things. Yeah, everything needs addressed essentially at the same time. 
And it is a, com a true combination of your lifestyle and medications as well. Uh, at the point of pathology, especially if you're thinking about um, fertility, which everybody should be, and you can optimize the health, uh, even preconception, even if you are the male partner, um, you can still optimize the health of the pregnancy and that child eventually. Absolutely. Um, so now let's get into some controversy with uh, oral contraceptives specifically. Um, so are PCOS patients being helped by putting on, uh, being put on oral contraceptives? Are they extending their reproductive window? Um, and we can get into a bit of nuance, like you know, what are the other factors here? Uh, but just to kind of start that discussion, you know, they have their place, but what are the patients that that would be a high yield intervention for? What are the patients that may be best managed in other ways? Patients that want symptoms addressed right away that also are needing of contraception are wonderful candidates of oral contraceptives because it's a two birds with one stone. And of course, again, it's a continuum or spectrum and there's patients anywhere in between where they're a fantastic candidate for a oral contraceptive or a terrible candidate of an oral contraceptive. If they desire fertility soon, then they're not a very good candidate of an oral contraceptive, not just because it is a contraceptive. And by soon, I mean within about 12 months. Um, but also because there can be a lag in returning to baseline of um, normal cycles, the timing and also the ovulation of the cycle. And there can also be a lag in returning to a normal hormone profile. Absolutely. Um, and then I think there's some messaging on, you know, uh, the, particularly with fitness influencers, it seems that, um, you know, all women just need to throw their birth control in the trash, you know, do things naturally. And I think that has the potential to cause some harm in a condition like endometriosis, where you are intentionally mm -hmm. wanting to suppress estradiol to extend that reproductive window. Yep. So I, I think that's just something that people should be aware of. So hopefully that information is helpful to some people. Absolutely. And when we get into fertility, so let's say you've gotten off your oral contraceptive, you have you know, gotten your metabolic symptoms addressed, you're more insulin sensitive, let's say you had a 10% weight loss and now you're ready to conceive, you're healthy, your partner's healthy. What are some of the you know, treatments that we would use if somebody uh, doesn't conceive naturally or it's been, let's say, 12 months of trying and, and we haven't seen conception. Mm -hmm. A lot of the supplements and medications we already mentioned are also fertility meds. Many people get in a combination of the myo-inositol and d Many people also take metformin. In general, the higher the body fat percentage and BMI, the more helpful metformin is. Aromatase inhibitors and CIRMs. Aromatase inhibitors, by the way, is the they're medications that inhibit the conversion of testosterone to estrogen. Those are often used between about day three and eight of the cycle. Um, and CIRMs, which are selective estrogen receptor modifiers, they can block estrogen in specific tissues. For example, the hypothalamus and the pituitary, where the um, precursor hormones called gonadotropins are made to stimulate the ovaries. Often those are also used during the same period of time. Each has different side effects and such, um, for example, ocular side effects, but in general, both of those treatments will increase the chance of a multiple gestation. 
Right, and that's when we see a lot of times the news stories where you know someone had uh, you know, five or six children at once. A lot of times there are fertility drugs that are involved there, mm -hmm. um, and you have multiple gestation, which comes with its own set of um, you know risks as well mm -hmm. to the mother's health. A good rule of thumb is that when you're starting a medication like uh, letrozole or Fremara is one of the commonly used aromatase inhibitors, and I. For individuals who need it, I do prefer it over clomiphen or clomid. When you use it from days three to eight, you wanna start with a very low dose, for example, 2.5 milligrams, and very slowly titrate your way up, likely using the lowest dose for at least a few cycles before titrating up to a higher dose to decrease your chance of multiple gestation. Aromatase inhibitors also have much lower risk of multiple gestation than um, CIRMs like clomid. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. And, you know, more isn't always better. In general, starting low and working your way up is a great approach. Mm -hmm. um, what about these sort of stories that we hear where people are like, well, you know, I had PCOS and then I got pregnant and my PCOS went away and then it came back after I, you know, stopped breastfeeding. What is, what is going on there? Are uh, babies curing PCOS or what are some of the underlying patho? Think of it as kind of a pause in the physiologic state of PCOS. You have a new pregnant and also postpartum normal. Um, so during pregnancy, most often nine months of gestation and in the postpartum period, often it is extended through the breastfeeding period because you have a persistently elevated prolactin, not always super, super high in the um, you know, 600, 700s that it can get to during pregnancy, but perhaps just uh, your breastfeeding and your prolactin might be a 50 or um, 60, that prolonged state is going to cause um, the prolactin specifically that causes the um, lactational amenorrhea um, that is due to some feedback inhibition at the hypothalamus and the pituitary, kind of like oral contraceptive pills. And then you have that high, high estrogenic signaling during pregnancy as well. So it's kind of mimicking that state, but in a natural way. Yeah, and I think it addresses some of those core symptoms that people have because you have a ton of estrogenic signaling. So, you know, very common during pregnancy that uh, a woman will, you know, have to get a new ponytail holder or will, instead of, you know, tripling it over, they're just doubling it because the hair volume increase is quite significant. Yep. And due to that increase in estradiol, you also see SHBG increase, and that's going to bind up a lot of those excess yep. androgens. Um, you know, reducing some of the acne, reducing some of the, you know, unwanted hair growth. Um, and then some women will have an experience where, you know, they felt terrific during pregnancy um, and then, you know, didn't feel well after. Um, so I always like to bring attention to, you know, postpartum depression, making sure that people are aware that this is something that is quite common and that there are things that can be done about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, postpartum depression and postpartum blues are both extremely common um, and there should not be any guilt felt about it. Many of the treatments for that are actually hormonal. Um, that has to do with um, both estrogen and progestogens. Yeah. And what are some of the, I guess, take-home points? We covered a lot of ground, I think, pretty efficiently today. We mostly stayed on topic, which is uh, an improvement for us. But mm -hmm. uh, take-home points, so if there were you know, a couple of things for people who think they might have PCOS or have been diagnosed with PCOS to remember from today's episode, what do you think those things are? PCOS is extremely common. Um, there's different estimates on its prevalence 
in the population, but I would estimate around 30%. Um, even if it is a very mild form of PCOS, if you're really, if you're watching this or if you're thinking about it, then um, look at diagnosis as early as possible. Um, you can optimize your fertility. You can even change the um, likelihood that you will pass on some of those traits to offspring if you choose to have them. There are many correlated health risks and there are treatments that are both directly addressing the cause, not directly addressing the cause, but it should be individualized and it should be in concert with lifestyle changes, but it should not necessarily be just lifestyle changes. Yeah, I think those are some great take home points and we touched on the genetics a little bit, um, but it is highly heritable. If you look at uh, identical twins, if one has PCOS, the other is very likely to also have PCOS. So it, it's not your fault. Uh, and there are tools that you can use to improve your symptoms, improve your health, uh, improve mm -hmm. fertility. Uh, it's just a matter of finding the right provider and the right plan for you. Mm -hmm. Some other kind of interesting fun notes about PCOS is some individuals with PCOS, um, many uh, physiologic variants of which this essentially is, have benefits to them as well and many are very highly performing athletes. Many can actually have very high metabolisms, especially if they do a good amount of resistance training and eat plenty of protein, and they can accrue lean body mass, essentially have some of the same metabolic benefits that some biological males have, and many are um, very driven and dopaminergic as that extra androgen can be related to extra dopamine throughout the system. So there is a, a benefit and a detriment to each of it and understanding your own physiology and taking that information and um, using it to your advantage is what we want to help you do. Absolutely. So if there's any questions or anything on the subject of PCOS or hormones in general that we didn't cover during this episode, uh, please leave those things below in the comments. We do read those and, and think of those when we're thinking about our future podcast episodes and social media content. and. We really appreciate all of you listening and may God give you health and happiness. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.